0: Thank you for listening to the All Souls Church Sermon Podcast. We are a counter-formational community devoted to following Jesus together in real life. For more information, go to allsouls.church. Go ahead and have a seat. Good morning. How are we doing this morning? Okay, that's what we're dealing with. All right. Uh, My name is Justin. If you're new, I am one of the pastors here. Uh, Pastor Harvey and Rachel are on vacation uh, and so I'm doing all the preaching this month. And, uh, and then on top of that, our video uh, guy, a uh, guy named Peter, who I'll also call brother-in-law, uh, also call roommate, also call, please just go away. Uh, he uh, is on a missions trip in Malawi. Uh, so I preached week two, three, and four this week uh, to the video camera, so I'm way ahead. So if I get a little confused, it's because I preached this one for the first time on Tuesday and then two others, and, and I'm not that smart. So keeping all that straight is uh, difficult. Uh, also, since you just walked in the room, uh, today is my 17th anniversary. Pause for cheering. And, uh, and that's my wife there and uh, and and this is what we're doing on our anniversary. So, uh, thanks for joining us uh, for the party. <laughs> uh, we are in Jonah uh, 2. We're gonna start in the last verse of chapter one, uh, but we're gonna do mostly chapter two. If you missed last week, uh, Probably Jonah is a familiar story to you, even if you didn't grow up in church and you don't have a Christian background. uh, The story of Jonah has kind of transcended just the Bible and is is kind of a cultural story uh, that uh, that many of us know. But I want to recap really quickly what happened last week so that uh, you aren't completely lost and we can just jump right in. So God comes to Jonah, who is a prophet Okay? The job of the prophet, 90% of the job of the prophet, is to hear from the word of the Lord and then preach that to the people. Right? So when we think of prophecy, oftentimes we think about the future, but really about 10% of the prophecy or the prophetic work was about the future. 90% of that, and I haven't done the math, these are approximations, uh, but 90% of it was just telling the people the truth not the future. And so this is God coming to a prophet going, hey, go tell Israel to quit sinning in this way. Or go tell Israel, I want them to go do this. Or go tell Israel this or that, right? So Jonah is a prophet uh, of God in Israel. God comes to him and says, hey, I've got a message for you. Would have been very normal. But the message was for Nineveh, not for Israel. And that was abnormal. Right, so God comes to Jonah and says, "Hey, I want you to go to Nineveh, verse two of chapter one. Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me." Now, Nineveh was the the center of the Assyrian Empire, and the Assyrians were enemies of Israel, and so this was uh, God coming to Jonah saying, "I want you to go to your enemy, right, walk right into town, and tell him that your God says they're doing bad stuff." and to quit it, right? Which is a tough, it's a tough ask, right? Like this is arch enemy and you're walking right into enemy, enemy territory and, uh, and having to tell them uh, to knock it off. And, uh, and so you can imagine that Jonah is scared of that, that, uh, that mission that God has given him. And so he runs, right? Instead of going to Nineveh, he goes to a place called Tarshish, right? And that's a uh, fun word to say okay so he goes to Tarshish instead of Nineveh he jumps on a boat and in the middle of the ocean or in the middle of whatever is between where he was and Tarshish didn't check a map probably should have but whatever body of water he was on God sends a crazy storm all of the guys on the boat are freaking out they cast lots which just means like rolling dice it comes up Jonah whatever that means and uh, and so they go to Jonah and go hey what would you do? Because the lots said this whole storm was because of you. And Jonah goes, yeah, I'm running from the presence of God. And they're like, wait, what? Why? Why would you do that? He's like, it's a long story, but if uh, if you want the storm to go away, you're going to have to throw me into the water, right? Notice he doesn't say, I will willingly jump in the water to save your lives. He goes, no, you're probably going to have to pick me up and throw me. And so they do, right? They tried for a second. They were like, oh, we were real hard. No, it didn't work. All right, throw them in. And, uh, and then the, uh, the storm is calmed, okay? That's, that's the paraphrase. That's not word for word what it says. But that's the paraphrase. That's the idea. And so we find Jonah where we are today at the end of chapter 1. We find Jonah at the bottom of the ocean, right? So verse 17 of chapter 1 says, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, some of you are thinking various things at this point. Some of you are thinking, oh yeah, I remember this on the felt boards in, in Sunday school, and there was a big fish, and it ate the Jonah guy, and, the, and that was a fun story, and I remember that, and it makes you feel uh, warm and fuzzy. Some of you are going really, like really, that's what we're talking about here, it's 2022, it's LA, we're not really believing these things, right? Like, it's a metaphor, it's uh, it's allegory, right? Like, right? And you're kind of looking around thinking, are these people taking this seriously? Now, here's what I would say about this. There are uh, a lot of arguments, uh, you know, voracious arguments, and, and, you know, arguments when it comes to the Bible is just a bunch of old white guys typing at each other, you know, so like that's arguments, right, when it comes to this stuff. But there are arguments about what, wh- how do we read this, right? And so we talked about this last week. Um, there's, there's very little doubt that Jonah was a guy, right? So 2 Kings chapter 14, calls, talks about a guy named Joseph, uh, Jonah, son of Amittai, and he was a prophet of God. So that's a second, the first and second Kings are some of the most like purely historical documents in the Old Testament. So it's not a lot of debate about whether Jonah was a guy, right? Then we looked at Matthew chapter 12 and Jesus referring to Jonah because the people came to Jesus and said, hey, we want a sign. And he goes, the only sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah who uh, was swallowed by a fish, was in the fish three days and three nights, and then came out of the fish. And that was prophetic. Uh, about his death and resurrection. So Jesus takes this seriously. We know that this that Jonah himself was historical. Um, and so somewhere in between those two things, we've got to kind of navigate how we read this. Now, what happens a lot of times is um, more liberal progressive scholars will go, well, this is crazy. Like, this, this cannot be true. This is obviously exaggeration. It's obviously, uh, you know, a, a parable or something like that. And, and I, don't think that that's, that, I don't think that that's true, and I'll tell you why in, in a moment. But what also happens is, on the other side, the pendulum swings, and, and conservative scholars go, well, we can't be that, and so we've got to go, no, this is exactly how it happened, word for word, blow by blow, this is, the, this is a historical account. And I think that is not altogether wise, either, for uh, reasons we will see in, in coming weeks. I think the best way to read Jonah is as satire, okay? So satire is a literary genre that we see actually throughout the scriptures. Jesus even used kind of satirical moments, sarcasm to draw out distinctions. I think the best way to read Jonah is this. Could it have happened exactly as it was written? I think yes. Here's why. The moment we open our Bibles, this motion alone presumes there is a God. Right, like we wouldn't be here, we wouldn't be addressing the Bible, we wouldn't be taking it as authoritative if there weren't a God. Now, if we come to this, come to a story like this and go, there is a God, that God is godlike in any kind of uh, reasonable way, but this is impossible, then I would argue you've got a, a, a terrible imagination right you 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 cannot conceive of a god big enough to cause something like this to happen i'll just tell you this ain't the craziest thing in the bible right like just wait till we get to the cross right which is fairly central to our faith and so if you go well you know i believe in god but i don't believe in a god who could do this then you're just you're going to struggle with jesus because he walks on water and he raises the dead and then he gets raised from the dead and he's healing sick people all the time and it's going to be a real problem for you if if you can't conceive of a God who has godlike powers. So, from that perspective, I would reject kind of the progressive way to read this, a liberal, a scholarly way to read this, which is this is impossible, this is crazy, because then you're, you're you're making comments about God and the limits of God's power at that point, and that's not an argument I want to make. Now, on the other hand, there are things in this story that are obviously not exactly how it happened. And we're gonna address, we're gonna see one of those today. And then we're going to see others at the end in chapter four, which make it clear that this was written, and this was written several hundred years. It was not written by Jonah. Everybody agrees. It was written several hundred years after the story took place. It was probably likely oral tradition, as much of ancient literature was before it was written down, oral tradition for several generations before it was written down. And we'll talk about that uh, in week four, when it was written, how it was written, and by whom. But this is reflective and, and a moment where Jonah at first, as he, as, as he began the oral tradition, started telling people, was reflecting back on these moments and he's writing it in a true but stylized kind of way. And so I hope we can kind of run a third rail here and go, hey, there's nothing about God that, that, and what I believe about God that would make this story impossible. Let's start there. And so I, I, I begin with this is, this is truth, capital T truth at least, and then I can engage the text itself and let it be what it is, right? And so we'll see some of that today. So I hope that's enough to, to, to keep you engaged for the rest of you know, the 30 minutes or so. Chapter 2, verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, Now, as I read this prayer, as I read what Jonah has, uh, has, uh, has said to God or is, uh, you know, in, in retrospect, uh, written down or told to people about what he was thinking in the belly of the fish, I want you to think about what's happening in this prayer. I want you to think about Jonah looking back on this moment because Jonah's good, but he's not uh, write a poem inside a fish good, right? Like I mean, this is, this is reflection back on what was going through his head and his mind in the moment, uh, you know, some years later. And he probably wrote down this piece of it and told the story for generations. But what I want you to think about is this. Is this a prayer of repentance or is it a prayer of thanksgiving? Is it a prayer of repentance or a prayer of thanksgiving? And what might that mean for the story? All right, so I'm going to read through uh, and then we'll talk more. Says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me, and all your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So is this a a prayer of repentance or a prayer of thanksgiving? Class? Thanksgiving, I mean, it says the word. That was kind of one of the giveaways, I think. The word thanksgiving is in there. So uh, maybe do better next time. But second question is, what was he thankful for? The fish. Jonah was thankful for the fish. Because when... You, you get into the head of Jonah, and you start to think back. Okay, he's on this boat. He knows he's running from the presence of God. You know that he is off mission, that God has called him to do a thing. He's disobeying very rebelliously. He, this, this big storm comes. The lots are cast. Everybody knows it's Jonah's fault. And Jonah goes, just throw me in. Throw me in. And it starts to make better sense of why he didn't just jump in, because Jonah thought he was going to die. Jonah thought that this was his judgment. Jonah thought, I disobeyed God, I rebelled from God, I ran away from the presence of God, that was my intention, that was my motive and desire, now the storm, and the only way to calm the storm is for me to die as judgment. And so he wasn't willing to commit suicide, he was going to force these guys to murder him basically, which is, you know, just a great guy, you know. But he gets down into the deep. He gets down into Sheol. He gets down into the darkness. And, and Sheol in Jewish literature is often about hell, but hell, even just kind of the way they understood it, was a place of, of, of kind of otherness and goneness and distance and separation and isolation and darkness. And so he goes, I was in the depths, the waves were crashing over me, I was down, down at the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever and then you brought me up. This is a prayer of thanksgiving for the fish. Which is, it's kind of, it's kind of interesting, right? Like, I think when we think about this story and we read it at kind of a cursory level, it's easy to see the fish as the judgment, Like, Jonah was disobedient, God sent a fish to eat him for a while, and that was his punishment. Like, time out, three days, three nights, and a fish. And then he got spit up again. But in fact, that's not the case. There's not a moment in this prayer where it acknowledges very clearly that there was repentance at all. The closest we get to repentance is him saying, my prayer came to you in your holy temple. That's it. So it's interesting that Jonah, some years later, reflecting back on this moment, sees the fish as his salvation and remembers the feeling of elation and joy and salvation when he was in the fish. So God saved him from the depths of, you know, basically saved him from drowning at the bottom of the ocean or the lake or pond or whatever, wherever he was. God saved him through this fish. And I, I, there was, there's no recording of his repentance. I don't know what he had to say. There was not some long drawn out repentance. He just, he just said, Help. Or I guess he was underwater, so he was like, I, I don't know exactly. But it was help, right? It was help. That's all. That's all he had to say. And God sent a fish, and that was his salvation. Jonah knew what he was called to do, but he fled. And he tried to flee, not just from his mission, but from the very presence of God. And God wasn't thwarted by Jonah's attempt to flee any more than my children can flee from me. By right? these kids, I have five kids, my oldest is now 13, uh, my youngest is four, and all of them at, at the, about the same age, about four years old, would play this game that uh, I would call, uh, well, they would call you can't catch me, I would call you're dumb and slow, and, uh, and what happens is they walk up to me and, and right in front of me and go, you can't catch me, and I go, "Oh, well, I wasn't trying, first of all i'm good with you being wherever else you just were but now you're in front of me and they go you can't catch me and i go i really can actually and they go no you can't and i go okay run and i just grab them, like this by the neck and then and and they and then i put them back down and they go you can't catch me. And I go, no, I just, I just did, actually, and, and I can do it again. And they run, and I just grab them again and hold them up. And then I look them in the eye and go, you, you, have we gotten this yet? And they don't. And then they play it again and again and again and again. They can't, they can't get away from me. I'm much faster. I'm much smarter. And they, in the end, they just, they just want affection for me is what I have found out, which is just, ugh, right? <laughs> we can't run from the presence of God. We can't. There there, there is no place. Psalm 139, which we read last week, says, David goes, where could I run from you? Where could I run from you? Not only can we not flee from the presence of God, you know, kind of theologically because God is omniscient and he is everywhere, but because God won't let us flee. God's pursuit of us is Relentless. God's grace for us is relentless. And so even when we throw ourselves into the sea, even when we are swallowed by a fish, he never lets us go. So verse 10 says, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. So eventually, Jonah ends up right where God the means, the process wasn't exactly what God or Jonah had in mind, but that's what happened. Now, I, I wonder sometimes, we look at a story like this and go, it, it's kind of crazy, it's a little bit ridiculous that Jonah would think he could just run from the presence of God. That, that we, like, as silly as that might sound, that we try to run from the presence of God, I actually think we try to do this all the time. And it doesn't look maybe as dramatic as us, you know, jumping ship and going to Tarshish. But we flee the presence of God or attempt to flee the presence of God all the time. We know what God wants us to do. We know who God wants us to be. Either some specific mission, some specific purpose that he has put on our life that we know, like I have this calling, and this is what I'm called to do, and I'm supposed to do this, or it's it's much more simple, and it's just obedience, right? It's just, I want to do this, and I know God wants me to do this, or I want to be this, I know God wants me to be this, and so I'm going to run from this calling and increasingly run from his presence, So this is a pattern I've seen from 20 years into ministry here. I've seen this over and over and over again. It starts by you stop praying and you stop reading your Bible 100% of the time. I mean, I I, I think I've said this before, but, but when I have had people come into my office who are having a crisis of faith or a crisis of, you know, some relationship in their life, the first question I always ask is, Tell me about your devotional life. Tell me about how often you're spending time to pray and read your Bible. And like 999,999, because there's always one exception. But almost without exception, they go, well, yeah, I kind of don't do that anymore. It's a way we run from the presence of God. Because spending time in prayer, spending time in the Word is a reminder, it's a reorientation back to what we know is true. And if what we know is true is not what we want to do, then the last thing we want is a regular reorientation back to the thing we don't want to do. Or the thing we don't want to be. And so the first step in running from the presence of God is always that we stop praying and we stop reading our Bible. And then we stop coming to church. And then we stop hanging out with Christians. And we plunge more and more deeply into a world without God so that we don't have to be confronted with what we know is true and what we know we're being asked to do. And so we just surround ourselves with people and things and practices that allow us to be who we want to be, not who we know we should be and what we're called to be. And it's silly, but what is that if if not fleeing from the presence of God? We don't want to be confronted with God's will for us. And so we avoid it. We pretend like he's not there, like a child hiding under a blanket saying, you can't see me. Silly. But we do it over and over and over. Even though we know we can't really run from the presence of God. So what does God do when we do that? Does he leave us be? Let us find our own way. Let us self-actualize. Is God non-intrusive? He's going, okay. Will you be you? You do you. I'll be over here if you ever want to come back. Like a codependent ex person, uh, uh, I'll just be here when you need me. But you just go. You just go be you and do you. No, He brings storms. He grabs us. He chases us. He's relentless. C.S. Lewis, in one of my favorite uh, quotes of his from Mere Christianity, says, "Um, we ignore pleasure, but pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Jonah could have very easily, in retrospect, looked back on, on the fish as judgment, Many other people could have looked at the fish as judgment, as buddies. When he told the story later, he'd be like, oh my gosh, I can't believe God would do that to you. I can't believe God would cause a fish to swallow you. I can't believe that he would even bring a storm in the first place that would cause you to have to get thrown into the water, and then this fish, I can't believe God would do that to you. And there's a way, absolutely, to look at this moment as as God's judgment and and some sort of unfairness. Like, why couldn't God have sent, like, just a beautiful sunset and a dove floating by, suggesting gently he'd go to Nineveh? Because we wouldn't have listened. Jonah would have ignored it. He was already sleeping in in the boat during the storm. We don't pick up on subtlety not when it's a suggestion that we're off course and we need to get back i can tell a story myself uh where where i lived this out myself and i had a bit of a jonah moment of my own this was years ago some of you may know this story some of you may not Um, i planted a church in 2004 in phoenix and planted it with uh, many of my friends and family it was uh, a some of the best time of my life spent eight years there planting that church it went very very well and uh and and it was in many ways some golden years and uh i, I felt called uh to leave that church and go plant a church in san francisco And I I, I knew it. I I knew I was called. I knew that this was what God was asking me to do, to lay down this church. And at the time, it was 5,000 people, five campuses, 50 staff. I mean, it was just a a very successful situation. And it was all my best friends and all my family and and everyone I, I cared about at the time. And I knew God was asking me to go to San Francisco to plant the church. And so we made that decision to do that. we moved to San Francisco, and certainly there were circumstances outside of our control that made the situation worse. But instead of of just simply obeying God and recognizing the mission that he put me on, uh, I I rebelled. I didn't go to Tarshish or San Diego. I did go to San Francisco, but but when I was there, I I didn't want to be there. And and my my attitude reflected that. I was scared and I was lonely. My idols were routinely crushed. I fled the presence of God. I sinned against God and I sinned against people. I I, I was not a pleasant person to be around. I was having a four-year-long pity party, basically. I was in Sheol in my own own heart and in my own mind. And like Jonah, God's waves and billows were crashing over me. The waters felt like they were closing in on me. I felt driven from his sight. Weeds were wrapped around my head in the form of fog. And it felt like this was the last place I wanted to be. And I called out for help over and over and over to God, but I called out for the kind of help I wanted, which was I wanted to leave. I didn't just say, God, help me. Do what you want to do, God. I'll I'll be who, who you want me to be, but just help me. Nope, I said, I want this. I want it to go this way. I want you to take this call away. I want to go back home. I don't want to be here. I want to go back home. Instead of letting me, he sent a storm, some sailors who would throw me into the storm and then a fish that would save me, metaphorically. There were people that, uh, that, that spoke out and said that uh, the way I treated them was not okay, and they were right. I was... I was harsh with them, and I, I was selfish, and um, as a result, the, the guys, some of the guys that were around me, some of my elders, uh, asked me to uh, take a, a year-long sabbatical, which is the way they put it, the way I would say it is, they fired me, and, uh, and, and they paid me to go away, and, and P- Pastor Harvey was one of those people, actually. And, uh, and, and so we spent a year in Phoenix, and I look back on that situation. I look back and go, I was called to go to San Francisco. And in spite of the fact that I did go physically, I did not go emotionally, I did not go spiritually, I didn't want to be there, and I was, I was blind. I mean, God blessed the ministry, the church grew, the church still exists, it's going great. We had a great home, we had people that loved us, and I was blind to it the entire time. And I look back on those guys, those guys firing me, and, I, and I, I call it today the greatest gift I've ever received that I never want to receive again. I hate that it had to happen, but it did. Because they looked at me and said, you're not going to get healthy while also planting a church in San Francisco. And they were right. And so we ended up in Phoenix, which is so much like Nineveh. That pain, though, I look back now with thanksgiving. I couldn't see it at the moment. It felt like drowning. It felt like judgment. It felt like death. And when I was fired and and sent away in love, I mean, these were some of my best friends, and they remained my best friends. That they were doing what they thought was best for me. And I looked at that, and and it was painful, and it felt like judgment, and it felt like something I never, ever want. And now I can see it for what it was. It was the relentless grace of God for me. It saved me. In many ways, I wouldn't be here in this pulpit. I mean, it could have gotten way worse. I mean, what I I did in San Francisco is I just was kind of cranky for a really long time, and people got sick of it. But it could have gotten worse. God saved me from myself. He saved me from my selfishness. He saved me from my pride. He saved me from my idolatry. Sometimes grace looks like a fish eating you. Sometimes grace looks like getting fired. Sometimes grace looks like pain. And it's not until maybe years later that you can look back with Thanksgiving the way Jonah did and said, no, that that was the relentless grace of God who was not just going to let me either have my own way and get to leave and it wasn't going to let me crash this was God's grace for me. And we see this over and over and over throughout the scriptures we see this over and over throughout our lives the choice we have to make is what how we see it and if we can recognize it as such because it's painful. It's painful. It took a long time. It took, it took a year for me to come to grips with the fact that this was God's grace for me. I was bitter and I was angry. And then, and then getting fired doubled the bitterness at first. And I couldn't see it. And I thought, man, this is, this, this is pain on top of pain on top of pain. And it wasn't until much, much later that God could allow me to see it for the grace that it was. And we see this in a macro sense in Jesus we see that pain has been transformed from a tool of death in the hands of Satan to a tool for salvation in the hands of God. That very same thing, pain and suffering and, and what feels like judgment and consequence in the hands of Satan is a tool for destruction and the hands of God is a tool for salvation. Because in Matthew 12, Jesus said, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus, like Jonah, was given a mission from God to go to the biggest, darkest planet in the solar system. He went without hesitation. But in order to accomplish his mission, he didn't have to be thrown into the water He dove in headfirst. He went down to the depths of our sin and was overcome by the waves of our guilt. On the third day, he wasn't vomited out, but he reemerged victorious. So that when we hear from him, we might obey. And when we are in the depths of the sea, we might call out to him. Because we have seen and known his sacrificial love and his relentless grace. That we might be able to see that in that calling, we can can see the goodness of it. We can see that even though it's scary or painful or not who we want to be or not what we want to do, we can believe and trust that it is good because it comes from the one who willingly dove headfirst into pain, suffering, and death for our sake. That that alone might be enough. To give him the credibility that he needs for us to go, okay, I don't don't fully get it. I don't fully like it. But I'm going to do it. I'm going to try it because I trust you and your character. And I've seen who you are. I've seen what you've done. And so I'm going to choose to believe and choose to trust and choose to obey and choose to walk in that. And then that's the decision we got to just do over and over and over again. Because every day will come... New, a new calling and a new mission and a new, new direction and all those things, and the same old temptations to be and do what we want to be and do. But know that when we get off track and we feel the waves crashing and we're at the bottom and it's dark and it's she, that all it require, all, all grace requires of us is simply. His grace is, is waiting, is, is being held back in some way. like anxious to be given to us. And the trigger is us simply just going, help. That's it. Not some long convoluted prayer. Not some, you know, commitment to changing our ways. Just help. God, help. And then salvation comes. It may or may not come in the way we think it's going to be. And it may, may even seem like a double judgment at the moment. But it is salvation. And maybe it takes months, maybe it takes years, maybe it takes decades, maybe we never fully see how the pain in our life is grace, but even that we can just say, help, help me see it. Help me see more and more and more of it. Help me see how every little thing, every little relationship, every moment of pain and joy, suffering and victory is actually your grace in my life, trying to reveal yourself more to me and pull me. He just never lets us run. He'll never let us run. He is constantly pursuing because he knows that the greatest life you can live is life with him. So he's never going to quit. It's relentless. And that's good news. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so thankful that you are relentless because our disobedience and rebellion is uh, seemingly limitless. Every day, every moment, every choice that we make, every word that we say is a choice to be and do who you have called us to be and do or to do what we want to do and be who we want to be. Lord, I pray that those two desires would be more and more and more aligned every day, every moment, so that So that our heart is your heart our desires are your desires what we love is what you love what we hate is what you hate lord please never stop pursuing us bring whatever means are necessary to draw us back to you in christ's name we pray amen now as always, uh, we're going to transition to a time of response. We'll do this in a couple different ways. You'll have a moment, uh, in just a moment, to, to pray and to think, repent of sin, to consider what we have heard uh, this morning. Uh, and then we're going to take communion together. So uh, you can come forward, grab uh, the communion supplies, take it back to your seat, and, and we'll partake together.